Hello, and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for history at Southern New Hampshire University. If you've listened to the previous episodes of this monstrosity, you're probably expecting me to talk to another historian about their career and all that. I'll come back to that next time. Today I'm going to do something a little bit different. We here at SNHU have another podcast series called History Soundbites, where a historian presents a bit of research on a topic of interest. Well, interesting to the presenter, at least. Today I'm doing a bit of a crossover between filibustering history and history soundbites. Filibustering history soundbites, perhaps. It's kind of like those before and after puzzles on Wheels of Fortune. Kind of like how Superman would show up in Batman comics occasionally. Not that I'm comparing myself to Superman or Batman, though I am pretty awesome. So today, I'm going to talk at length about something I mentioned in a previous episode. In my conversation with Jen Bryant, I mentioned the following. Yeah, I grew up uh, in Northern California uh, near a town called Chico, and in Mm -hmm. 1850, uh, I'm drawing a blank, I think it was 1853... I might be getting that wrong, but anyway, there was a um, a massacre of Chinese. Uh, there was a Chinese camp of immigrants, um, and a local white mob got together and massacred. Um, I'm drawing a blank on all of the details, but <laughs> there was a there was a very violent confrontation between a white mob and uh, Chinese immigrants outside of just a few miles outside of um, where I grew up. In that clip. You no doubt heard me say that I probably just got everything wrong, and it turns out that, yes, indeed, I just about got everything wrong. It did happen a few miles outside of Chico, but it was in 1877, not 1853. At first, I thought I would just insert a brief correction into the introduction or conclusion to a future episode of Filibustering History, and then I started diving into monographs and newspaper articles from the time. Three days later, I came out of the research-induced fog and had about ten pages of notes written out. And the date when I came out of that research fog, was March 14th, 2017, exactly 140 years to the day after the massacre. Thus, it seemed as though I was destined to do more than just issue a stupid old correction. So instead of recording a brief correction for my mistake and moving on with my life, I'm going to try to make sense of those pages of notes. Perhaps you'll join me. Okay. To those brave souls who didn't just click on pause or flip over to Facebook, welcome to this first edition of Filibustering History Soundbites, a podcast about what I sometimes do with my life. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University. Today, I'm going to talk to myself about an attack on six Chinese immigrants in a shack outside of Chico, California, on the night of March 14, 1877. Only two of the six victims survived, and, the, and five white men went to prison. This attack was, unfortunately, one of dozens, or more likely hundreds, of episodes of harassment and violence against Chinese laborers in California and other western states during the mid to late 19th century. But it was one of the most brutal, and at least gave some Californians pause, if only for a moment, regarding anti-Chinese sentiment. First, a warning. I am going to read quotes from testimony, confessions, and newspaper articles, all of which use the term quote-unquote Chinaman for a Chinese person, which has derogatory connotations to modern ears, and it feels really weird to say out loud, but in the interest of historical accuracy, I'm going to read these um, quotes verbatim, even though they have that uh, terminology in them. Jean Faelzer describes much of the background and context for the Chinese massacre in her book, Driven Out, The Forgotten War Against Chinese Americans, published in 2008 by the University of California Press. So I will rely on her work, along with the work of Andrew Giori, Su Chen Chan, and a few others. 
For primary sources, I'm going to rely mainly on newspaper accounts, including articles in the Sacramento Daily Union, the San Francisco-based Daily Alta California, and others that I'll name as I go. As Charles McLean noted in his book, A Search for Equality, the Chinese had originally been welcomed to California with a mixture of enthusiasm and curiosity in the early 1850s. But as their population grew, and they began to work in numerous industries that had previously employed only white workers, their presence came to be deeply resented by white laborers and politicians. As historian Theodore Hittel wrote in 1897, as a class, they were harmless, peaceful, and exceedingly industrious. But, as they were remarkably economical and spent little or none of their earnings except for the necessities of life, and this chiefly to merchants of their own nationality, they soon began to provoke the prejudice and ill will of those who could not see any value in their labor to the country. End quote. Chinese laborers often earned lower wages than their white counterparts, and white workers often accused the Chinese of depressing wages for everybody and of stealing jobs that rightfully belonged to them. The state legislature responded to white laborers' complaints about Chinese immigrants with a long series of laws intended to harass and, hopefully, drive those immigrants out of California. These measures included special taxes on Chinese people working in specific industries, especially mining. It didn't work. The Chinese population grew in California to just under 35,000 in 1860 and to just under 50,000 in 1870 when they made up 10% of the state's population. Now, discriminatory taxes is one thing. Violence is another. The state legislature did not condone violent attacks against the Chinese, but as anti-Chinese sentiment increased throughout the late 19th century, so did the destruction of property and, as we will see, physical violence. Anti-Chinese sentiment was strong in the mining districts, but it was also strong in the agriculturally rich Central Valley of California. The town of Chico, about 100 miles north of Sacramento, saw competition between white and Chinese laborers in farming and related industries. That competition turned violent in the mid-1870s. Six months before the massacre in Chico, half of the Chinatown neighborhood in nearby Oroville was destroyed in a fire. Other fires broke out in the two Chinatown communities in Chico in February and March of 1877. While these attacks destroyed property, but not lives, it was apparent to many observers that this was starting to get dangerous. It was starting to escalate and get a little bit out of hand. This campaign of violence and intimidation was encouraged and led by the local laborers' union and by the Order of the Caucasians. Both of these organizations came into being only within the previous year, but they quickly made themselves known throughout the area. The secret but seemingly well-known, Oath of the Laborers' Union was to, quote, drive out the Chinese by killing them or stampeding them, unquote. The Laborers' Union openly discussed plans to destroy area Chinatowns with explosives, to destroy white-owned businesses that employed Chinese workers, and to kill white men who employed or protected any Chinese immigrants. The Order of the Caucasians was a group of fellow travelers in the anti-Chinese crusade. I probably don't need to describe the membership criteria for the Order of the Caucasians. Regardless, the Order's constitution required, quote, each camp and individual Caucasian to impede, harass, destroy, or annihilate every merchant, manufacturer, and trader, traveler, mechanic, and laborer who employed any Chinese person. The 1870s saw unemployment increase across the country, and the Order wanted all employers to replace Chinese workers with unemployed white workers. 
The Order of the Caucasians held open meetings at the Chico Town Hall, the Armory, and in the offices of the Bank of Butte County. The influence and popularity of these two organizations had become apparent in February 1877 when anti-Chinese candidates won a majority of seats on the Chico Town Council. An officer from the Laborers' Union also became the town marshal. And at that point, things turned really nasty. Chinese camps and buildings owned by white businesses who employed Chinese workers began to mysteriously catch fire in the dead of night. Chinese men, who had already bought all of the shotguns and six-shooters available in Chico, threatened to shoot any unwelcome white visitors and took turns keeping watch over their camps and over their sleeping comrades. Which brings us to the murder of five Chinese laborers just outside of Chico on the night of March 14, 1877. Christian Lem, a German immigrant, owned a heavily wooded farm about a mile and a half from town. It's where Highway 32 crosses Bruce Road today for the, like, one of you in this audience that knows the area. Christian Lem had tried to hire white laborers to clear the brush on his farm, but found no takers. So he hired six Chinese workers to do so. This dynamic could sound familiar to many modern listeners, but I digress. So Mr. Lem hired Chinese laborers and ignored all of the usual threats from the Laborers' Union and the Order of the Caucasians, which usually included letters nailed to front doors demanding that Chinese workers be replaced by white laborers. At 9 o'clock, on the night of March 14th, five local white residents decided to make good on those threats. These were Eugene Roberts, a butcher, John and Charles Slaughter, brothers and launderers, Fred Conway, a ranch hand, and Thomas Stainbrook, a young farmer. These men met at a nearby stable, hiked eastward from town, crossed the newly cleared field, climbed a fence, and snuck up on a shack being used as a bunkhouse. Now, the attackers intended to set the bunkhouse on fire and scaring the sleeping Chinese workers into fleeing the area. However, they were surprised to find that the Chinese laborers were still awake inside that shack. Wo Ah Lin... One of the two Chinese survivors of the attack later testified that, quote, six men came into the cabin. One of them searched for money while the others held pistols near us. We were sitting on the bed and hung down our heads, afraid that the men would fire at us. They got between two and three dollars. They took some of the clothes off the bed, put them in a pile in the center of the room, threw coal oil on the pile, and then fired the shots which killed my companions. Their final deed was to set fire to the oil-drenched clothes, end quote. A bullet merely grazed Wo Alin's arm, but he fell back and played dead until the attackers left. After that, he testified, quote, I threw my person on the fire and put it out. Could not tell a German from an American, but know the murderers were white men because I heard them say, God damn, end quote, which I suppose is the universal identifier for white men. He then went to Lem's cabin, who told him to go away, and then to Chico, where he also found no help. The next day, farm workers visited the site of the attack. One ranch hand described the carnage that he found the morning after. Quote, the first Chinaman we saw was lying partly across the door, dead with his brains oozing out. We had to step over him to get in. The next two lay on their bunks, dead. The fourth had been shot in his head, and his brains were oozing out, and he lay moaning. He died while the inquest was being held. The fifth Chinaman we found across the slough under a buckeye bush was shot in the breast, the bullet ranging downward and lodging in his back. He had a jackknife and had cut seven gashes trying to cut the bullet out. Three of these six Chinese workers died in the initial attack. Another died the next morning. 
At this point, I will put aside June Felser's account of the attack and turn to the testimony and confessions of the participants, many of which were printed in the Sacramento Daily Union on March 29th of 1877. The attackers corroborated much of Wo Alin's account, though they disagreed over who gave the order to kill the Chinese laborers. As the Daily Union put it, Charles Slaughter, quote, admits that he helped kill the Chinamen on the 14th. He says he and Eugene Roberts searched the Chinamen while the others guarded them with pistols. He went there at first only to rob the Chinese, as the story was they had a large sum of money in the cabin. When they robbed them, they got but a few trifles. Then Roberts spoke up and said, dead Chinamen tell no tales. Roberts then took out a bottle of coal oil and scattered it about the house and furniture and on the Chinese. Some of the fluid got in the eyes of one Chinaman. Someone said, oh, don't put it in his eyes. Roberts replied, oh, hell, he won't know anything about kerosene in ten minutes more. Then each one picked his man. The word was given by Roberts, according to Charles Slaughter, to fire, and they all fired. Immediately the coal oil was lighted, and they ran off. Charles Slaughter also admitted guilt in the burning of the two Chinatowns, a house, and a Chinese laundry for good measure. Eugene Roberts, the butcher who Slaughter threw under the bus, made his own statement which, unsurprisingly, tried to throw someone else under the bus. As written in the Daily Union, Roberts said that, quote, John Slaughter, the brother of Charles, suggested the idea of burning the Chinese cabin on the night of the 14th. He says he searched the Chinaman, aided by his brother Charlie. He charges John Slaughter with giving the word to fire, while Slaughter says it was Roberts. Fred Conway, a ranch hand, supported Slaughter's testimony. I found Conway's confession in, of all places, the Sydney Morning Herald, as in Sydney, Australia. Now, Australia's white residents had their own issues with Chinese immigrants, but that's a topic for another episode. For now, Conway had been the first to be arrested, which I'll get to in just a second, and he identified many of his comrades in arms. Conway claimed that he did not know what the group was up to that night, quote, until we got near the cabin, when Robert said, unless we kill the Chinamen, we will be arrested. The first object was to rob them of their money, as it was reported that they had some about them. When we entered the cabin, here were six Chinamen there. Roberts and Charles Slaughter examined the cabin and the person of each Chinaman, while the rest of us held our pistols on them to keep them quiet. I cannot state, nor do I know, whether any money was obtained by either of the boys. Evidently, he did not know about the two or three dollars that Wo Ah Lin said was found. Roberts, before the shooting commenced, had scattered broadcast over the cabin and the Chinaman the contents of a bottle of kerosene which he carried with him in his pocket. I do not know that anyone set fire to the cabin. We then all fired, each at a selected Chinaman, and some of the crowd more than once. Four Chinamen were killed, as we learned by our shots, and two were wounded, who are alive. As soon as we fired, we left in haste, followed along down the lumber company's flume, through the woods, and finally separated near the house of Mr. Roberts. The consensus among historians and a lot of the people in the courtroom concluded that Roberts was the one that most likely ordered the others to shoot. Now, as mentioned, the attackers quickly dispersed and a reluctant manhunt ensued. I say reluctant because, as Jean Felser points out, the town council would not allow Wo Alin to hire a physician or even rent a wagon to bring his wounded and dead friends back to town. Remember those anti-Chinese folks elected to the town council a month earlier? Well, they had quickly named like-minded men to the positions of justice of the peace, town marshal, town attorney, and town trustees. And this group of town leaders refused to open an investigation into the murders. It was only after news of the attack spread to other parts of the state, the country, and the world that local officials began to pursue justice for the dead workers. John Bidwell, the most famous resident of Chico and a supporter of Chinese workers, contributed to a reward for the capture of the murderers. 
The Chinese six companies in San Francisco hired detectives to help search for the fugitives. Newspaper coverage overwhelmingly condemned the attack, pointing out that, quote, Californians have resorted to almost innumerable plans for petty persecution of the celestials, such as onerous and useless laws regulating their eating, their drinking, their sleeping, their working, the cut of their hair, and the cut of their garments, unquote. The St. Louis Democrat hoped that the disgraceful massacre of Chinese at Chico appears to have had the effect of rousing Californians to an appreciation of the possibility that there may, after all, be something criminal in killing Chinamen. Imagine that. Quote, the story of the wholesale murder of Chinamen near Chico, Butte County, California, by a gang of whites is about as disagreeable and discouraging as any which we could receive from that quarter, unquote, noted the New York Tribune. Quote, the brutal murder of the Chinese laborers in California has aroused public indignation, but it will probably not result in any practical action, according to the Washington National Republican. The Forum a newspaper published in Dutch Flat, a mining community about 100 miles southeast of Chico, took a more cautious approach. Quote, While we believe the Chinese to be a great detriment to the best interest of the state, we cannot characterize any such occurrence as less than a cold-blooded diabolical murder, and for which the dastardly perpetrator should suffer the extreme penalty of the law. But then we must consider that there is no direct proof, except the words of a wounded and frightened survivor, that they were white men. The Chinese are continually fighting amongst themselves and take an immediate and bloody revenge for any imaginary or fancied wrong, and it is as likely that they were Chinamen as white men. But whichever way it should be, the law should take its course, every possible effort should be made to detect the cowardly assassins, and be they white men or Chinamen, let justice be dealt to them with an unsparing hand." End quote. Thus, many newspapers condemned the murders, but felt the need to identify some of what they thought were mitigating circumstances. The New York Tribune, which, as noted earlier, argued that the wholesale murder of Chinamen was disagreeable and discouraging, also called the Chinese, quote, an obnoxious race. Sounds like outrage over this massacre wasn't going to change the direction of anti-Chinese sentiment in California. Anyway, back to Chico. The attackers managed to remain at large for nearly two weeks after the massacre. All of that publicity put pressure on the town to find the perpetrators, though. And here is where the hero of the story comes in. The mailman. Fred Conway, one of the murderers, didn't really understand the concept of lying low while avoiding the fuzz. And he continued to mail threatening letters to businesses that hired Chinese workers, even while he was on the run for the murder for the, at the Lem Ranch. Eventually, a postal worker whose name I never found, but I can only hope there's a star on the wall of Postal Service HQ for him somewhere, recognized Conway's handwriting, and according to Felser, shamed the elected officials of Butte County into making an arrest. After two days in jail, Conway named his accomplices. All in all, 29 people were arrested for activities related to the massacre and the other incidents of arson and harassment in Chico. Most of those arrested were members of the Order of the Caucasians, perhaps unsurprisingly, but the organization's leaders were never charged with instigating violence. Fred Conway, the incessant letter writer, stood trial for murder and was found guilty, and the other four murderers pled guilty without trial. The presiding judge sympathized with the murderers, though, and sentenced them to 12 to 25 years in San Quentin instead of death by hanging. Six more men were convicted the following month for arson. Sympathetic locals immediately began to petition the governor for pardons, and in 1881, only four years after the Lem Ranch murders, Governor George Perkins, a businessman from Butte County, shortened the sentences for all of the convicts but one to time served and ordered them released from San Quentin. 
Now, during the murderer's brief stay in the clink, attacks on Chinese communities and their white employers continued in Chico and throughout the West. John Bidwell's factory, which had burned just before the murders, was rebuilt and then burned again the night before it was supposed to open. Historian Andrew Giori tallied up the most dramatic moments of this era as follows. Quote, The most horrendous incidents of white violence directed against Chinese immigrants include an 1871 riot in Los Angeles that left 19 Chinese dead, an 1880 riot in Denver that left one Chinese dead, the 1885 massacre in Rock Springs, Wyoming that left 28 Chinese dead, and an 1887 attack near the Snake River in Oregon that left 10 Chinese dead. Shi Shan Henry Tsai counts 55 anti-Chinese riots in the late 19th century, most in California, but ranging from South Dakota to Alaska. End quote. The Lamb Ranch murders were, unfortunately, just one episode in that long parade of violence. Now, in the aftermath of the Chico murders, while the murderers were still on the run, the St. Louis Republican argued that, quote, there's one of two things the federal government ought to do at once. Either abrogate its existing treaty with China and order every Chinaman out of the country forthwith, or else employ all its authority and all its force for the protection of these people. It is an unspeakable outrage upon law, justice, and humanity to allow the anti-Chinese crusade to go on as it is now going. If we cannot apply some remedy that will reach and cure the disease, let us confess that American liberty is the worst sham the world has ever seen. The federal government finally chose the first option five years later with passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, which prohibited the immigration of Chinese laborers for 10 years, and this prohibition was eventually made permanent until 1943. The Lem Ranch Massacre was just one of many dramatic moments in the anti-Chinese movement, and it alone did not alter the trajectory of that movement. In some ways, this massacre was just a mere blip. But that blip did demonstrate the limits that white Californians would tolerate. Harassment and discrimination was one thing, cold-blooded murder was another. Even though the murderers served relatively short sentences, outrage did spark a manhunt. The brutality of the massacre provided an opening for some Californians and others outside the state to condemn the broader anti-Chinese movement. Even though those voices failed to prevent the eventual exclusion, of Chinese immigrants, it is nice to remember that some such voices existed. Okay, now that I've lived up to the filibuster part of this episode and completely blew the soundbite part out of the water, it's time to wrap this up. Next time, I'll get back to letting other historians get some words in. If you have any questions about this episode, or any previous episode, or if you have suggestions for future episodes, please write to me at snhuhistory at gmail.com. You're still welcome to write to me at my SNHU email address, r.denning at snhu.edu, but Gmail somehow seems easier. I'm Rob Denning. Thanks for listening.